Hi, everybody. This is Joe Illick. I'm the Artistic Director of Fort Worth Opera. Tonight is the inaugural program of our Fort Worth Opera Salon. And tonight I have a wonderful, distinguished panel of friends and guests, all of whom are very important in the opera world in different ways. I'd like to introduce all of them to you. First of all, Francesca Zambello, who is the artistic director at Washington National Opera, the artistic director and general director of Glimmerglass Opera, and a magnificent director who's done work around the United States and the rest of the world for the last 35 years. Missy Mazzoli, composer based in Brooklyn, also teacher and the composer of Proving Up, the composer of Breaking the Waves, the composer of Salt, the composer of Songs from the Uproar, and I believe there are some other works coming up that you can tell us about. Um, I've read about them. Karen Slack, fantastic soprano who sings around the world and also recently the artistic advisor to Portland Opera. So I'm eager to hear about that. Karen, I don't know uh, as much as I'd like to about what that whole position means and how you're reshaping that. And E. Lauren Meeker, who also is a director and the general director of Opera San Antonio. So we probably don't have enough time on this program to cover all the many things we could talk about. One thing that I noticed as I emailed all of you is that uh, you're all interested in storytelling in different ways. So I think we'll start off just by talking a little bit uh, about how the act of storytelling most appeals to you and how it connects with what you do, either when you're singing on an opera stage or directing on an opera stage or composing for the opera stage. Jessica, can I hand this over to you? Well, I mean, I, I think knowing all of these artists and, and having worked with all of them in uh, many different guises, I, I, I know that they're all committed to, as we say, storytelling as a, as a place to start. Uh, and that means whether it's how a character sounds or looks or acts or is. Um, and I think that's one of the great things about us is that we each have very individual voices uh, and that we represent them on stage in many different ways. So I'm, you know, I'm honored to be with this group. I, you know, I really respect everybody and a lot of them are you know, like, we're pretty good friends. So it's great that we're all pursuing that, but I think storytelling now has to take on a broader sense, a better context, really. It means how do we tell stories in our time and what does it mean in this time? And I don't just mean now in you know the height of greatest change, uh, certainly in my life, but I'd say you know in the last 20 years and then in the next 20 years, how are we going to connect the world around us with the art form that each of us love very, very much and want to find it our own ways to keep it thriving. Um, it's not gonna be what it was before, so we have to find the new stories. And how has your way of telling stories changed over the years? Uh, so that's difficult. I mean, I think that for me, when I started out, uh, you know, I was definitely in a, in a field by myself. I know this is gonna air in Women's History Month. Um, and so we're just leaving Black History Month and coming into Women's History Month. So I think it's so important. When, when I began, the, just, there were not role models. There were not other women directors. 
There were not women administrators. Uh, there were very, very few. And so I was figuring out why are we doing all these operas about women that are being told by like Traviata and Salome. And I mean, just things that were so profoundly about women. Uh, so maybe there's other ways to view these stories. And that doesn't mean reinterpreting them, but that just means interpreting them perhaps from a perspective that comes from a different soul. And so I think that that was my starting place. And of course, over doing this for 40 years, things change a lot. And I've realized the potency in the last decade and have pretty much committed myself to most stories somehow making some social connection in some way, whether small or large or touching audiences in a way that makes them think. And that's, I think, one of the wonderful things about opera and music is that the content is so rich and we can use our content to constantly be holding up a mirror to society, to having new voices like, I mean, like Missy, I'm uh, obviously a composer of great importance in our time um, and finding ways to, to speak and make people listen in a different way. Lauren, I'm gonna jump over to you when you direct a show, do you find yourself as a woman interpreting things differently than the interpretations you might have seen growing up when male directors would tell us how Violetta felt or how Mimi felt? You know, I certainly always interpret it from my perspective at any given point in time. So even the way I directed, say, a Boheme three years ago would be different than how I would direct it now based on my life experience and the artists and group who are creating a production with me. Um, what Francesca says really resonates with me in the sense of using viewpoints and using who we are today to be able to tell stories that impact uh, our community in the most positive way possible. I happen to not be a man interpreting this material. I happen to be me. So that will always be the viewpoint through which uh, I work with my collaborators. And I think it's a real gift to be able to be an industry where collaboration and serving the community and looking at ways to tell stories that can have the biggest impact is at the core of what we do. So that will always be at the forefront of my work uh, as a director, uh, as a general director and everything in between. And are there traditional works that you find resonate with today's public more than others? Uh, yes and no. And I think, again, it depends a little bit on the time period and the specific community that you're serving. Um, but I can certainly say that for me as an artist, there are pieces uh, throughout my my lifetime as a stage director that have resonated more or less with me based on where I am as a human in, in my growing process. And I think that's true even when you look at the traditional canon. That's why some pieces sort of resonate and go up and down the scale of popularity is because what we're drawn to within our communities, we find different values in different pieces at different times. And that's what I sort of love about our art form is that it's not a static, one interpreted way and then done, that we will constantly evolve, whether that's evolving our perspectives on traditional operas or having wonderful artists like Missy who are birthing new pieces into the canon for us to consider and carry the art form forward. Talk to us, Missy. When you think about the next piece you want to write, are you thinking of a specific kind of story you want to find or does it just 
grab you out of the blue? Um, you know, I mean, it's just different for every piece. Um, I find myself gravitating towards some similar themes over the, the course of my career. Um, I find that most of my operas center around um, a woman's story. Um, so there'll be a woman sort of at the center of the opera. And in my mind, the opera is sort of about her. Um, whether that's in a really obvious way, as in Breaking the Waves, where you have this woman at the center of the story, or in a not so obvious way, like Proving Up, which, thank you, Francesca, commissioned originally by Washington National Opera, very grateful. Um, you know, and we're, I, I think of that, you know, my favorite character in that opera is the, is the mom, you know, and so this, this, for me, the story really revolves around her. She's trying to maintain order through this, these obsessive domestic chores, even though, um, really the power of decision-making in that family. You know, this is taking place in 1868 in a homestead. So the power of decision-making is held with the men in that family. Um, so, you know, I'm always, I'm always looking for something, um, yeah, I'm interested in stories about middle-aged women in impossible situations. Um, I, I, and I'm interested to see how they get out of them. Um, my next opera, um, which is for Norwegian National Opera and Opera Philadelphia and Chicago Lyric Opera is called The Listeners. And it's about a woman who finds herself, um, she's sort of a suburban soccer mom who finds herself uh, entangled in a cult. And um, in well, the end- Gordon's story. Jordan, Jordan Tannehill's story, yeah, 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 a Canadian okay. playwright um, who developed it specifically for this opera. So this will be the first time this story is happening in the world. Um, you know, but I'm just, I'm, I was fascinated to see how this woman got herself out of this cult. And in the end, she actually ends up taking over the cult. And, you know, how does that, um, you know, how does that happen? So those stories are very interesting to me. Um, I think a level of magic and um, a sort of surreal element to the story is always great. I find opera extremely surreal. Everyone's singing all their thoughts, every single one of them. Like we are not in reality. And, and I enjoy operas that sort of embrace that, uh, that element and use it as an opportunity to sort of bring us, um, in a way, bring us actually closer to the truth by get, feeding it to us in this magical, exaggerated way. So Karen, I want to ask you a question that might sound rhetorical, but it's not. You're the only one of us who actually gets out on the stage and makes all of this happen. What do you do when you have the words and the music and the story, and at the moment it's just dots on a page to turn it into the fantastic performances that you give? What's that process for you personally? It's a lot of things. It's tears, it's wine, it's... <laughs> It is, um, you know, marking my score up like a map in pencil, all kind of colors. It's all of those things. Um, and not only do I have to learn the notes, I have to memorize. And then I have to have an idea, a vision of what I want to see, what I want to feel in the stage, what I want the audience to feel. You know, I have to have day one come with the director to have some kind of context and thought about the about who I am portraying, you know, and it's a lot of different things. I, you know, I used to, when I first started, you know, Francesca's known me since I was 22 years old. I'm 45 now, you know, I have no problem with saying my age because I look good. So, you know, <laughs> like, you, you know, look good. <laughs> I mean, I used to just go music, 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 music. And as I have developed and matured as an artist, I'm like, oh no, words, text, subtext, subject matter, 
everything that's going on around me, what happened before and what happens after to me is the most important now, you know? And so it's such a journey of, you know, of uh, lifting the black notes off the white page to make them breathe into the air, into the, into the space, you know, it- um, You ever get surprised and have one idea and then walk into a situation with other singers and a director and a conductor and suddenly the character becomes something quite different from what you'd originally imagined? Yes, yes. But I am a sponge and I'm very open and I go, oh, I just go, okay, well, let me shift. Let me pivot. Let me try to figure out how I can navigate and negotiate my way into what I want to do and what the director wants. You know, like yeah. that is a, that's a dance as well, right? You know, you only learn that by doing, but discovering mid performance is, is a thing. Discovering mid run, discovering after you've done a role a lot, which I've done uh, Cheska's Porgy, Serena's, you know, now seven times, seven, seven productions, seven times, eight times. I don't know more than that, but you know what I mean? The production. Mm-hmm she's very different than when I did it for the first time, you know, and singing Aida or Trovatore, wherever it is, but finding out midway through that this person is not who you thought it was five times ago. You know, it's, it's a very, it's very magical for me. Let's talk about audiences for a minute. Cheska, when you conceive your seasons for the future, do you think, largely about the audience or largely about the vision that you want to put out there and hope that the audience can just get along and run with it? You know, there's a a great level of pragmatism that goes into planning um, Mm -hmm. for listeners. I mean, of course, we all have like dream seasons and dream casts and dream pieces we want to commission. You know, if I put completely on the stage all the time what I wanted, it might not sell enough tickets, you know, and there's a big reality out there, which I think people have to realize is, you know, when you plan a season, it's, it is, it's like a dim sum platter, you know, you've got to make sure that you've got enough options to draw people to come see you. And now, you know, of course, before the revolution of our time and before the pandemic, we were already on a downhill spiral in this business. So we were already trying to reinvent. Now we, really have to you know rebirth like give birth to so many new things but also figure out how to keep the things that have meaning to us mm-hmm. uh and so uh, you know planning a season the days of the days of like oh okay let's do a tent pole here a tent pole here you know the a tent pole is you know I eat a boy I'm Carmen yeah. Yeah. and then oh let's do one commission above oh let's have a theme around this for the season those days are like history that's like PC pre-COVID. If so you now, had, if you had somebody say, "We're going to bankroll you from here to next year," what dream season of four operas would you like to put yeah, on? Yeah, but but that's not the thing, Joe. To be truthful, because you want to create audiences, and if we were, yeah, okay, sure, I'm going to commission. You know, I don't even want to mention composers because the, there's so many great ones now. But, but, a lot but there's so many great artists. Season, yeah, yeah. Of, of course. Yeah, like uh, you know, a season of all new works, and you know, yeah. the Trojans and War and Peace and the Ring Cycle. Sure, it. But it's more about 
like, how am I going to create audiences? How am I going to keep audiences? And how am I going to bring in new audiences? And how am I going to do works that are going to speak to an audience? So being bankrolled, I'm not going to say no to the person. Let's see. Let me see if I can find them. Let me know you're in Texas. Let me know. But it's more about how are we going to create the future together? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, th- that's what it's about. It's like I, I'm thinking about what's going to be here when I'm not doing this job, you know, because these jobs are like give backs. You know, once you like having been a you know, freelance director for years and then taking, you know, leadership positions for me, it's all about give back. So how am I going to give back to young artists or emerging people or mentoring people or creating new audiences or or making kids part of opera or bringing opera out in different places? So, Joe, let me have that donor and then let me see if I can adapt them to another way of thinking. OK, but so thank, Missy, thank you. Thank, you're in Texas. Let me know. OK. Oh, yeah. Missy, when you when you think of the pieces that you're about to write but haven't written yet. Do you think in this way too, do you think about uh, trying to connect as much as you can with audiences or for you, is it more let the audience come to you? I'm absolutely thinking about the audience. I mean, you, it has to, you have to be able to connect with an audience. Otherwise, what's the point of doing the show at all? <laughs> um, but I also have to trust that, you know, what moves me in a deep and profound way um, will move others. And, you know, it's also every piece you write is always a conversation with the company. I mean, these things are too expensive and too involve too many people um, for it to be just something that I dream up and I'm the only one who thinks it's a good idea. I mean, that would never happen. Um, so it's always in collaboration with the company and the, by extension, the community that that company is in. Um, and it's, oh, I'm always looking for ways to, to create work that is of our time. You know, what is resonating with what people are thinking about now? Um, certainly proving up um, the piece that began at Washington National Opera is a great example. I mean, I thought of that um, sort of in the wake of the, uh, the recession in 2008 and was interested in writing a piece about the American dream. And so when Francesca came to me with this um, commission to write for the um, AOI, so the American Opera Initiative program that they had, it was like, oh, this is perfect. Um, and then I started writing it after the 2016 election. So the, everything that was going on in the world, I felt like I was able to filter through um, the experience of this family of fictional doomed homesteaders. Um, and so in that way, I was creating the piece with today's audience in mind. When you have these pieces, often for you, they're commissioned by several companies. There are multiple uh, you know, commissioners. So. Do you, in fact, work with all of them as the work develops to say how you're feeling about the way this is turning out? Yes, absolutely. And often there are different casts. Um, There'll be a slightly different take. Sometimes there are different directors and totally different productions with each company. Um, For Proving Up, you know, it started in Washington. Um, Obviously, huge resonance there with like the American dream and government and everything that's going on. And then it went on to Opera Omaha. um, And the story takes place in Nebraska. So the work had a totally different resonance happening on the spot where literally the spot, the earth, where this story could have actually happened. Um, And many people in that audience, you know, had um, not too distant relatives who were homesteaders or still had land in their family that was um, acquired uh, as part of the Homestead Act. So every place had a very different kind of personal resonance. 
I want to say Missy gets may if I may gets yeah, a please. plus on composer collaboration with companies. Um, I, I, I've I've worked on probably a hundred new operas in my career, ranging from twenty minutes to very very long, and there's a handful of greats, great composers and great collaborators, and I would put Missy in that. But I do think it's about that mixture of collaboration, but also coming from a personal place. Because I think for all of us, you know, Karen, Lauren, you, Joe, you know, the composer, they're like, you know, Karen used the word, the map, you know, they, they create the map and we interpret it. We read it. We like, we try and move it to the next thing. So I just want to say, you know, of course I can't talk about all the, you know, terrible collaborations or people you know, where you've tried to, reason with people and that's the thing about operas you know it's like we've all said the words you know community collaboration ensemble you know that's the weird magical and amazing thing about this art form i'm sorry i just had to jump in because that's great i, I don't think missy do, missy missy is really that. good at that yeah you know it's it's no secret to anybody that this is a difficult and divisive time in in our country and i'm not sure that there's ever been a time when people said, oh, everything is great right now. But as we do what we do, uh, how much do each of you hold it in your heads that we have a possibility to bring people closer together, that we really can help create unity with the art that we put on stage, whether as a singer or a director or a composer? Anybody jump in? Yeah, I know. I shut up in a minute, but I mean, it's like we, you know, I always say we are here to be a bridge. You know, there are so many disparate people and whether it's, you know, new works, proving up or when we commissioned blue, you know, these are pieces that are like speaking to now, but I also feel like commissioning uh, like a lot of works for kids. I'm talking about like kids, you know, that make them think about like the environment or, uh, you know, important social issues, you know, that's what's so great is that we've got an art form that stretches. And it is, you know, it's like, like now, can we program Don Giovanni? Can we program Rigoletto? How are we going to get audiences to that? You know, you know, how do we program again, Porgy and Bess? You know, these are like things that we're going to have to figure. Like, so if we can't program those pieces, we better find all the Missy Mazzoli's in the world to give us new repertory, you know, and that's one of the great things about the flowering of repertory in America, you know, particularly in the last 25 years is the right. amount of really interesting composers working and speaking our voices that allow people to connect and have dialogue with each other. I'm sure we'll keep performing Rigoletto's and Don Giovanni's. Lauren, I know you do you do traditional works in San Antonio, right? Yeah. You know, what's interesting, the whole conversation is quite interesting, and I'll, I'll use an uh, aha moment, for example, from my own experience here in San Antonio, even before I became the general and artistic director. Uh, we did a production of Tosca that I directed here a year ago last fall, and uh, at the second performance was our invited uh, student night. And we got into the end of act two. I'm giving away the cards if anybody hasn't seen Tosca. Um, but Tosca stabbed Scarpia, and in my staging twice, 
And uh, there were, the first time there was an audible gasp and applause, and the second time there were bravos and other um, uh, vocalisms that were thrown in. And there was then a lot of conversation at the intermission after that that I was listening to both in the student uh, groups that were sort of conglomerating in the lobby and with the um, adults or more uh, uh, consistent sort of patrons that Opera San Antonio had at the time. And what was really fascinating was that the patrons, the, the supposed opera lovers, in some cases hadn't seen a Tosca. I've got an in, uh, 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 community here that hasn't seen a lot of the war horses yet. Um, and the students, that was true for as well, but their perspectives on the situation were so different. You know, the adults were experiencing for the first time and feeling very polite in their seats. The students were having a big like Me Too movement, yay, you get him sort of moment that was quite vocal. And so the audience is just the best in the world. <laughs> thank goodness for students, right? So that actually fostered this really interesting uh, conversation throughout the company and the community about how different groups can react to different pieces. Now, you can't just bubble it into war horses, right? Every show is going to have its own, its own pros and cons and ways that it needs to be approached. Um, but I, I do think there will be a balance between um, looking at pieces that uh, resonate in different ways and how to keep those uh, in the seasons as we move forward, in addition to really surging ahead and blossoming with new works and making that an equal and important vocabulary for companies across the board. Do you do musicals in San Antonio? We do not. We have yet to venture into that territory. Doesn't mean it's not a glimmer <laughs> in the back of my brain, having learned from folks like Francesca. You know, yeah, about you've been opera. wonderful about that. You've treated music theater and opera like they all belong on the same stage in the same season, and your audiences obviously feel the same way. I, I think that you know, musicals in some ways are America's first operas, the same way that, you know, jazz and blues and gospel have created our musical language. I mean, our musical language is now, finally, I feel like we have the freedom to express ourselves with an American voice uh, that has culled so many of these different, different things. And I, I do think, look, of course, you know, when you program... West Side Story, you definitely, with opera singers and dancers, you know, look, I'm, it's not like uh, it does extremely well, but I'm pretty proud that things like Appomattox that I've programmed and Blue, uh, you know, have, have really sold out in big opera houses, you know, and, and that's, you know, to me, when, when you've created audiences that are willing to see all of that, that that's, that's thrilling. I mean, I've sat through Breaking the Waves, I remember, in a performance in New York City that was totally sold out. It was like I had to sell something to get a ticket, you know, like my arm to get a ticket. So, so there are a lot of audiences. Uh, again, you know, are they always in urban places? No, sometimes they're in places that you don't expect. It's, and again, it goes back to that thing of I was like that donor, you have to create your audience, create your community. Karen, you've sung Aida and all the traditional operatic roles, but I know you've also, shall we say, crossed over and done things in a much more popular vein. Do you feel there's any difference or is it all just 
communicating? I think it's all communicating. Listen, to, for me to sit here and pretend <laughs> like you, the, the vocal uh, tools that you need to sing Aida translates into singing um, uh, Fire Shut Up In My Bones or Dead Man Walking or whatever the other roles that I've gotten the chance to do. And by the way, I love new works because I love, as I feel like the shackles of tradition are, are thrown out of the window and I can do what my heart and my throat wants one to do. And so I, I remember the first time I talked to John, um, uh, oh my gosh, uh, conductor, John Demain about, about um, my, my love for new works. And I got that through chamber music. I didn't necessarily get it through opera because people weren't calling me to do it. And he's like, you like new work? And I'm like, oh my God, I, lo I love it. And so I, yeah, I, I, I I am fortunate to to live in both of those spaces, and um, and I do have to navigate vocally, you know, a little bit. I have to shift because the same kind of vocal requirements for a bit. Say, if I'm singing and watching National Opera in that big space at the Kennedy Center, where I'm having to produce a very large sound, you know, over the orchestra through the house is not re always required in um, new American works. Mm -hmm. It's about something different, you know, which is amazing. As an artist, you get to color and shade and use different tools in your toolbox. And so I count it as a blessing. Can you color and shade the same way when you are in a 3000 seat house having to sing over a giant orchestra? You can, you should. Do you always? No. <laughs> you know, but um, I, it's a different, it, it is different. The pianissimo in a uh, a very, a very exposed, you know, orchestra with a different thing. It's a very, you know, in a smaller space, it's a different pianissimo. I have to sing mezzo forte, but in the big theater, it sounds different, you know, and the coloring and all of the, use, you know, manipulating the breath and all those, all those technical things that you have to do. But, you know, and I, I sort of gotten away from uh, thinking about, thinking about singing as like mezzo forte, pianissimo, and all these, and sort of with color and shading and uh, thought, emotion. That's what those things are. So when you take away the, the technical, all the technical things and start to think, shift your thinking as a storyteller, it just is a different, it's a different world. It's a different world for me, the way I make music over the last 15 years. Oh. I'm different. Well, it's great that we all change, right? It would be boring if we stayed the same. So Missy, I know you're a pianist and a teacher and a great composer, but I don't think you're a singer, right? And yet you seem to have an instinct, an intuition, how to write for the voice that just sounds so true and, and works in people's voices. Is that just great ears or how did you come to that? Well, thank you. Um, you know, I am a terrible singer. I can't, I can't carry a tune. Like it's hilarious. Like I'll try to sing things in workshops and the singers are like, stop, just stop. I got it. You know? And, um, but I think that's why I'm so interested in opera. And that's why I dedicated myself really in a very hardcore way to studying the repertoire when I first started writing opera. And this was really, I have to give a shout out to Opera Philadelphia where I was composer in residence. And I spent the first year of that residency, not writing any opera, but just studying works um, and sitting in on every rehearsal they had and talking to every director who came through and just like seeing what worked and then what didn't work. Um, 
And so that was a huge education. And that's really what led me to this. But I also think that, you know, I'm, I draw inspiration from human beings. So, you know, some composers are really inspired by nature and that's great for them, <laughs> but I, I am not like my, all my inspiration comes from the wacky and weird and manipulative and beautiful things that human beings feel and think and do. Um, so, and that's always, there's always been sort of this narrative thread to my work and this, this storytelling, um, even in the purely instrumental works. So when I discovered opera for myself, it was like coming home. I was like, oh, this is what I'm supposed to do. Um, and I remember a year into that residency with Philadelphia, I really had this, it was like a flash. I was talking to the director, Daniel Fish. Um, and I was like, this is what I've been longing for. It's like to talk to directors and to talk about the psychology behind the role. And um, I love all of that stuff so much. Um, so it's, it's been a great fit for me. And I think that I've, it's, it's a pleasure to like dedicate myself to working really hard on these operas. Can you remember what the first opera you ever heard was that just made all the lights go on? And you just thought, oh my God, this is incredible. Well, so, um, you know, when I was 19, I saw my first opera. It was Wozzeck at the Met in 1999. And I bought a ticket for, but sat in the last row. Like, I didn't know how to do, like, rush tickets or anything. And I remember I could, like, touch the ceiling. Like, there's that row in the Met yep, where you're yep, so far up, you can actually touch the ceiling. And I was just like, this is amazing. Like, this is everything that I want in art. But I didn't think that opera for me was possible at that point. I was just like, this is too big. You know, I don't know even where to begin. You barely even learn. I think it's changing, but in conservatory at the time as a composer, you rarely learn a lot about how to write for the voice. And you certainly don't That's learn right. about how to start writing an opera. Um, I think it's often just seen as something that's too massive to teach. Um, so I just didn't see a path forward. And it really wasn't until Opera Philadelphia came along with their composer in residence program that I really felt that it was something I had to do. But yeah, Wozzeck all the way. <laughs> so in your Luna program, are you working with those composers to be able to write well for the voice? Sorry, in my in Luna Composition Lab? Yeah. Yeah, well, you know, I mean, Luna Composition Lab, it, it's a program that I run for um, female, non-binary and gender non-conforming composers in their teens. So they're very young. They're really at the beginning of their compositional journeys. Um, and they are the ones who come to us and like, I want to write an opera. You know, it's like, I don't have to, I don't have to push them in that direction. Um, and we always take them, we have a festival every year and we take them for a, tour, a backstage tour of the Met. Um, last year they met Peter Gelb and I was like, congratulations, you've done what every, every composer takes decades to do. You got a meeting with Peter Gelb. Um, and so they're really coming to us like wanting to write for voice. So this year in our festival, we're having a workshop with Janine Tesori um, and uh, the, um, and working on having workshops with singers. So the interest is there. And I think that's because there's been this like real shift in American opera. I see it over the last 20 years where um it's, it's become very popular and so many more composers are interested in writing it. I mean, we found just, if I could jump in, you know, in yeah. Washington, we have a program called American Opera Initiative where we commission three composers and librettists and let's, you know, I, the importance on the word and, and the stories, but to write 20 minute operas, like you got to tell a story. And, and the only thing that um, when we started the program, which now we've done 30 operas, so it's 10 years old, um, that I said as a stipulation was it must be an American story. It must be, I don't want to, he I don't want something based on European something. I want it to come, I don't care where and how, but somehow American. 
And I think giving people like, you know, same thing, like you've got to write 20 minutes and tell a story and develop characters because developing a character, you know, through text and music, that's where that, you know, that's where it all comes from is knowing those people. And I was, I was just sitting here looking at this group thinking it's so interesting because like Karen knows the character from this way, Lauren and I know it this way, Missy this way, you Joe that way, you know, it's so interesting. And then it's all does have to come like together. And I do think when you asked Karen about singing, I was like, in the end, I always think, oh my God, they're up there and I'm not. And it's like, how stressful is that? I'm sitting out here with a stomach ache, but it's more stress on them. But I do think the the short pieces is so has proven so important. And so many of those composers have gone on to get commissions and, and we're actually launching a new program that's in the same vein, but and I can't talk about it yet. But I, but I think that the opportunities to give people chances to write nuggets is really valuable and with an orchestra mm. and singers. Yeah. How great is that? Yeah. But Karen, I'm, I'm going to guess that even though it's incredible pressure, you love that moment when you walk out on the stage and it's all on you. <laughs> well, you know it cause you've conducted me. So well, you... I just had the feeling you were, <laughs> No, listen, it is a lot of pressure and I, it is a lot of, um, I always have to talk with myself before I walk out, like, girl, <laughs> you asked for this. <laughs> you said you wanted to do it. You signed the contract. You know, it's always like, can I turn around and, and go out the back door? I mean, come on. Like I'd be a fool. I'd be fake if I didn't, you know, uh, express that. And, um, but when I'm out there and I'm doing the thing and the moments are happening, especially when I sing repertoire that I've listened to the legend sing, like the first time I got a chance to do Tosca, I almost, first of all, I couldn't do this, the murder. I couldn't do the jump. I was all nervous. I got all like, oh my God, freaked out, you know, whatever. But at the first time I got a chance to stand there and do Visitarte, an aria that I had listened to since I was 14 years old. I mean, it's, a, I'm emotional thinking about that. I even got a chance to do this, you know, like my, I God. do know actually. Yeah. <laughs> yes. You, you know, I, I was mean, a kid when I heard the first Salome <laughs> I ever heard, I was 13 or 14 and it imprinted on me the way that Wozzeck did on you, Missy. And then when I got to conduct it for the first time, it was just an incredible experience. And, uh, yeah. Oh, the know, first time I heard the triumphal scene and I was in rehearsal, the first time I got to do it, and I'm just weeping. I'm weeping because I remember being a kid in North Philly with the Lantine Price CD, blasting it. And then I get a chance to be that. That is, and to be me, a black girl from North Philly. I mean, that's crazy. I'm, that's crazy. It's, <laughs> it's amazing. But that's one of the amazing things about opera, I think, is that when you look at the incredible diversity of people working in this field, and I don't just mean in America, I mean, like, so often working abroad, I always think, God, I'm in a rehearsal room, and there are like 10 nationalities mm -hmm. and really different, you know, economic backgrounds, racial backgrounds, educational backgrounds, and we're all gathered around, you know, the Bible, the score, and we're trying to figure it out together. Um, that's one of the great things because we're not bound by language. 
you know, you can be working with people who have completely different backgrounds and don't even, you know, I mean, that's what I think, you know, and people come from everywhere. Mm -hmm. That's what, one of the things I love so much is the sort of you, and that's, it goes back to like, if we can build the bridges in the rehearsal room, we can build them outside. Mm-hmm. Oh, amen. I hope that that's true. Well, singers yeah. also are direct ambassadors, right? We are the face. We are yeah. the first line of defense, you know, as they say, in a way. And um, so, so many of us have experienced the that bridge gap that, you know, particularly when you were talking about artists of color, like we are what each other sees and even to aspire to be that thing, right? You know, but um, I, but I, I hope that everyone who doesn't even, who don't look like me, see me and say, I can do it. I wanna be there. I wanna be in the audience to support her. I wanna, I mean, listen, I, you know, Francesca, when she was directing many years ago at, at Santa Fe, when I was a young artist, um, um, dialogues the Carmen. I again, I could not. I could not do the murder. She told me, "Go sit down over there." I, cu I couldn't do the the beheading, and she. I would cry all the time. And she's like, "Okay, tomorrow, tomorrow, you got to do it." So I have a thing with like, you know, that. Oh my God, I forgot that. I forgot. Yeah, tomorrow. I remember that now. I remember the rehearsal. Oh my God. But I but I got to see Francesca as a leader, as someone. I'm like, I want to be like her someday. You know what I mean? Like, I was like, hmm, I didn't see it around me. And I'm like, you know, I, I, for very early on, I knew I wanted to be on the other side of the table. Like, I didn't want to teach voice and I can do that. That's fine. Whatever. I wanted to be a change maker. I wanted to have the microphone. I, I wanted to, you know, make the decisions and do all of those things. So it's, it's just so representation to me is important beyond just like race in this business. You know, it, it is, I want to be that thing, you know? So talk about Portland for a minute. How are you being that thing with your artistic advisor position? Well, Sue Dixon called me on the phone. I never sung in Portland. I didn't know who Sue was, but she reached out to me and said, I see what you're doing. I hear that you're a leader, you know, and your industry people respect you. And would you come and advise? And I'm like, oh, uh, what does that mean? I didn't even know, you know, I wasn't even thinking. My mind wasn't thinking about that. And so when she... When she said she told me she had been following me and through this COVID time, because in this situation now we've gone to panels and we've gone to through, you know, all these discussions and, you know, I have uh, emer emerged as an influencer, as a leader, because of the platform that I built with, with Kiki Conversations. And I get to talk to artists and I get to also express myself. And so she saw me as a leader and gave me an opportunity to be on the other side, to be a part of the cast and to be a part of production cho choosing and, you know, deciding what new works get commissioned or what, what we're going to, you know, do in the future. And she, she gifted me a wonderful opportunity and to sing and to, you know, to do all these things. And so. Well, that was a win-win. <laughs> We're lucky to have you. Well, we have a good time. Lauren, do you plan, even with COVID going on, what will happen in the next season and the next three seasons? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And it's not that there aren't uh, multiple contingency plans that go with even what my ABC, D, E, F, and G. Basically, yes. I mean, there are 
uh, strat strategic plans around budgeting based on how COVID evolves and plan then artistic plans around how COVID evolves as well. Um, but it's it's been a goal of mine since I started here at Opera San Antonio to start uh, encouraging the company and, and moving the needle forward on thinking more than one show out. Um, and, uh, and there's a balancing act, right, between how many seasons you really, when it's too many seasons out versus the right amount to be looking at and shifting the cards. But uh, constantly evaluating what's happening in the world and in my community and how to tell the right kind of stories in each season is part of what we look at. Um, aggressively from year to year to really analyze and make sure we're headed in a healthy direction. Do people in the audience give you lots of feedback? You get phone calls, you get emails. We love this. We hated that. Oh, yeah. I'm looking at Cheska reacting. Yes. <laughs> yep. Um, uh, I actually get my most direct feedback in Francesca knows this from my mother and father who will march right up to me and give me very specific feedback. My father is always complimentary and my mother gives it to me straight. Um, and then I'm, I always make sure here at Opera San Antonio that I'm visible in the audience, you know, pre, during and post show. And uh, people are no holds barred, you know, they really are. You, I get a lot of feedback right away from a lot of different perspectives, and I value that. I mean, I have to know what my audience is thinking. It's about what Cheska's talking about, building a bridge. I have to learn uh, how they're responding to pieces for better or for worse and use that to, to move my company forward in the future. Well, do you, I mean, I'm just saying this because this question crosses my mind hundreds of times during an ordinary season. People have their reactions, and sometimes they really can't handle something yeah. and sometimes I find myself drawn to say to them you know I really hear what you're saying we're going to try to do this differently and other times I find myself saying try seeing this again and see if now that you have a different way to think you might see it in a different way I mean years ago we did our first Dialogues of the Carmelites in Fort Worth and more than half of the audience was gone before it was over. Wow. But a lot of them came back a second time to see if they liked it better. Now that blew my mind because um, I think that it was because one of the, the nuns had gotten drunk and there was an article uh, in the Fort Worth paper that said nun in the slammer, you know, because she'd been at a party afterwards. And I think that made people get a lot more interested in the dialogues of the Carmelites. <laughs> So you never know what it's going to take to bring bring people into seats. But I know we all want not only to have people into seats, but to actually communicate with them and have them leave those seats feeling a little bit differently than they'd ever felt before, which is what I hear you saying you're trying to do down there. Yeah, I mean, there's not a piece of art, uh, a piece of theater that I've encountered where there isn't some way to interpret or question the human nature and the themes of the pieces they affect us. Um, I mean, that's how I look at pieces as a, a director. It's my direct response to telling the story uh, and to bringing characters to life. Um, you know, rare, rare, rare for me is, is a place where I just go, oh, that's, you know, fluff and wasn't that lovely. I think there are always kernels and nuggets of, of things that we learn when we go and have that magical experience of sitting in the theater together 
watching artists on stage and in the pit create something that washes over us and we have that bond from audience to artist uh, that's invaluable for how we interpret who we are as humans and that that carries out into the rest of our lives and our communities that that i think is the power of art really so does anybody in our last minutes want to tell us what you're hoping to see in the next couple of years besides us being all able to get back into theaters as far as a direction for um opera in this country i'm i'll jump in just real quick i'm hoping to see more women in positions of power and influence so i'm just so inspired by the, the three of you here you know not just amazing artists but also taking on that role as um, you know, someone who has control over what we're seeing on the stage and who's, who's you know, hope, I imagine like opening that up. Um, just from my own experience, you know, like my, all my early commissions came from women in positions of power. So it was Cheska, Beth Morrison. Um, and th those were really the two who gave me my first two opera commissions. Um, and so I just think there's an, an inevitable opening up um, when you have uh more diversity in in places of power yes yes i think it's a complex thing you know and and i think that all of us on this panel would totally agree what we want to see in the next decade is true equality in the profession uh you know gender race you know in the power positions um and and sometimes that means how do we pull along the financial sector that accompanies it? I mean, there's no question. We know that, you know, opera suffers from systemic racism. It suffers from, you know, sexual discrimination. You know, it, it, you know that is the nature of it. But it also has this incredible unleashing power. And so for us, who are, I know we're all change makers and working on it, it's going to be how do we, put those systems in place, not just like now, like, oh, that was great, but it, it's an investment in the future. Like, it doesn't mean just, you know, you know, I get really frustrated with some colleagues who say, oh, well, we, you know, we did that opera and, you know, we had a female conductor or we had, you know, a really diverse cast. And I'm like, yeah, but like, you're supposed to do it all the, all the time. time. It's not supposed to be like a special event. <laughs> that is like how you're supposed to plan for three years, five years. Out. And you're supposed to mentor the people. You're supposed to put them in your young artist program. You're supposed to put them in your, you know, like the ASM position. You know, that that's what it's about. And so that also means that you find, you know, now really being brutal, you know, it's like you gotta you have to find the money to support those systems. And and that is uh, I'll, I'll be honest, that, that's difficult sometimes. Yeah, of course, there are important foundations like, you know, the Mellon or the Ford, but really finding donors who believe in those things and who invest in it for the future. And that, to me, is, is, has really been, you know, that, that's the thing that I always think about is like, how can we have mass mentoring, mass change within the business? And I, I, I'm, you know, these are things that I'm always grappling with. And it's funny, just and then I'll shush is like when Karen was talking about Santa Fe in that summer, you know, I was like when John Crosby hired me for the first time to direct there in 1990, 
Santa Fe was traditionally a, a bastion of, it's like there wasn't like a strong female presence there. But, uh, but I remember working there and feeling like, oh, change is possible, um, you know, in this kind of situation. Uh, and, I, and I think that each of us have experienced change making in our own degree. So that's yeah. my hope for the, for the next decade. Yeah. I'm, for me personally, I have two things. I would love to see more um, diversity in new works Cat, diverse casting in new works. I love that Missy cat that Talise did Ma, because I was like, oh well, what, is Ma supposed to be black or wait a minute, she's supposed to be mixed? Because the Talise, while she's not mixed, she's very you know on stage you you she can be ambiguous her race you know. So, but I want to see more of that. Like I want to I I want to do and I want to do uh, stories about black queer women. Like where is that opera? I got two ideas, but where is that opera? You know, I'm like, where's that represent that presence in new works? So that's important to me, but definitely diversity in, in new, in, in new works without that being the issue. Like, oh, this has to be a black character or a Latin character or Asian. Like I would love to see more of that. And I think that audiences want to see more of that in the story, in the stories. For the future, I want to know what Karen's brewing first and foremost. <laughs> yeah, that, that got my attention too. Uh, so ding, 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 uh, <laughs> Karen noted. Um, but I would certainly echo the sentiments of all of my colleagues, which is just really thinking outside the box on how to push the industry forward, how to look at that in terms of equality, uh, as Francesca has so brilliantly stated, and also look at that in terms of balancing new works and traditional works uh, and really being able to carve a new future because we are in a time where we're all having as artists or administrators to sit down and reevaluate what it means to be really carrying this precious gift of opera forward. And maybe the revolution that we're in now will give us all impetus for excitement and change in order to do that. I know we all hope that opera leads the world and changes the world. I think in a large way, the, what the, what we're talking about is is reflecting the world. And in, as long as we live in a world of systemic racism and lack of equality, opera is going to have that too. But one thing we haven't talked much about is education. And I know all of our companies have education programs and kids are really the changers. The more that kids get out and see things that make them think differently about the world they're living in, the more we all have hope that in 25 or 50 years or whatever, this will all have happened and people will look back on 2021 and say, wow, those people were really just so confused then. You know? <laughs> we hope that. Anyway, you're all so marvelous. I really appreciate every single one of you being here. And uh, I hope everybody stays well and happy and sane and that we just all keep going on doing our part. Um, in the opera world. And I hope that some of us will get to connect even in person in the near future. Yeah, this is so great. Well, thank thank you. you for the conversation, Joe. And thank you. I'm what I'm like, I, I, I couldn't have arranged a better dinner party than with, with you all. I mean, what a- Except the one where we'd actually be together. Right. I know, I know my, I, I, I have a 12 year old like I promised meatballs tonight. So it's like tonight is like Italian pasta night. So I wish everybody was coming over for dinner. Well, take a rain check though. Yeah, <laughs> take that rain check.
This was wonderful. So nice to be with you all. Really delightful. Thank you, Joe, for having all of us. Thank, yeah, you. thank you so much. Thank you, great everybody. to see all of you. Likewise. Okay. Ciao. See you soon. Have a lovely evening, everyone. Thanks for joining us for Fort Worth Opera Salon. If you like what you heard and you want more, please consider making a donation to support Fort Worth Opera and all the work we do to bring opera to North Texas and directly to you through our new digital initiatives like this podcast. Text FWO2021 to 44321 or visit our website www.fwopera.org to make a donation. If you'd like to send us a message with topics you'd like to hear more about or questions for our guests, please email salon at fwopera.org and be sure to follow us on social media at Fort Worth Opera to find out about the next episode of Fort Worth Opera Salon. See y'all later.